0: Well, welcome to First Methodist Mansfield. Uh, Glad to have you today. My name is David, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome those uh, at the Well, at the Well Cafe, those at Sunday night at 5 o'clock. We're glad to have you, especially if this is your first time Uh, here with us at First Methodist. Uh, Glad that you're here, and if we can help you out in any way, if we can uh, answer any questions, we'd love for you to stop by uh, the connecting point right outside uh, your service today. If you have your bulletin, I want to encourage you to pull that out, and on the back side of that is a place where you can uh, take some notes. There's a few words that I'd really encourage you uh, to write down today in in our message, and so I want to encourage you to grab that. Uh, We are in the fourth week of the season of Advent. And I've shared with you in recent weeks that in the Christian calendar, there are two really important seasons uh, in, in the year. The, the first is the season of Lent, which is the six weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, and the, the, the other important uh, uh, week is the, uh, the season of Advent, which leads up to the celebration of Christmas Eve. And in both of those seasons, we really have the same emphasis. It's a a time of preparation, preparing for the celebrations that come at the end of those weeks. So here in the season of Advent, we're in a attitude of preparation as we prepare for the celebration of of, of Christmas. Now, in Lent, we we, we end with Easter, and Easter, if you don't know, is our second highest attended group of services in in the course of the year. So Easter's usually number two. one you this may surprise you but number 1 is christmas eve so that means that this week We are preparing to welcome more people on our campus than we do at any other time uh, in the course of the year. And one of the reasons that that's true is because we give you so many opportunities to come to Christmas Eve. So there are eight opportunities. If you have your bulletin, you can see the list of those there. You can also see them on the screen, the the opportunities that we have to be a part of a Christmas Eve service uh, this week. And I wanna show you this because I wanna encourage you to do a couple couple things for me. The first thing I wanna encourage you to do is to find a service that fits for you. So we have three services that are uh, the kids, Kids will participate in dressing up as shepherds and wise men and angels and recreate the Christmas story, the three nativity uh, services. One will be on Tuesday night at 6 p.m. and then 2 and 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Uh, Two services that will have contemporary music uh, like the service that you're a part of right now, that'll be 8 p.m. on Tuesday night and 6 p.m. on Wednesday night. And then several services that feature our chancel choir, our orchestra, the bells, more traditional music. I want you to find a service that fits for you uh, and, and, and just figure out what that's going to be. And then the second thing I want to encourage you to do is to think about inviting someone to come with you on Christmas Eve. Uh, many of you found your way to First Methodist because you came to a Christmas Eve service. And the reason that I know that is because we're preparing to welcome probably 1,000 new people to First Methodist this week. Uh, And so I want to encourage you to to invite people to come. And then the third thing I'd love for you to do is once you find a service that fits for you, if you would like to help us welcome the thousands that are going to come, I want to encourage you to, to sign up to be a greeter. Uh, as thousands of people experience First Methodist for the first time, we certainly want the, the first experience to be one where they feel warmly welcomed uh, into the life of this church. So, if you can come to the two o'clock service or the ten o'clock service, eleven thirty, whatever it is, find a service, uh, and at the connecting point uh, afterwards, you can sign up to be a greeter. Just show up early to the service that you would like to attend. Uh, We we, we need more greeters in all those services. And again, it's a great gift that you share with someone uh, as you introduce them to the life of this church. So we appreciate your help uh, in that. We've been in a series called Christmas in the Holy Land, if this is your first time uh, here with us. Uh, And it is really part two of a series that we did in Lent in the spring this last year. Pastor Mike and I, our senior pastor, went to Israel in February. We took a film crew with us for the purpose of taking you on that journey, both through our Lenten series and through this series here in Advent. And so what we've been looking at are those places in the Holy Land that correspond to the Christmas story. And we've been walking through that. And I want to show you first just a map to kind of reset ourselves of where we've been and what we've looked at. We started our journey in Jerusalem. We went to the church of St. John the Baptist, which marks the birthplace of John. John was the prophet who came to prepare the way for Jesus. In the second week we traveled north to the city of Nazareth and in Nazareth we went to the church of the Annunciation which is built on top of the excavated ruins of 1st century Nazareth which was the childhood home of Mary and her son Jesus. There in the church of the Annunciation we remembered the the angel coming to Mary and telling her that she was going to have this child named Jesus. Last week we came south again. To Bethlehem. And I want you to notice that the distance there between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. They're, they're fairly close to one another. We went just outside of Bethlehem to the shepherd's fields. And there we remembered uh, the place where the shepherds first heard the news that Jesus was to be born. This week, we're going into Bethlehem. And I'm taking you to the church of the Nativity, the place that marks the birthplace of Jesus. But let me first read to you from Luke chapter 2, the first seven verses, Luke narrating for us. Uh, The birth moment. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, remember that place way up north, coming to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register for the census with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So let me take you to the church in the nativity, to the place that marks the birthplace of Jesus. I want to show you a video first uh, that will begin in the courtyard area outside of the church in the nativity in just a moment. And then we're going to go inside the actual church, and what you're going to see is the front of, uh, of, of that altar space. Uh, I'll say a word in just a moment about why it looks different from our churches here. This is to the left of that altar space, and there is a stairway down that goes underneath that front altar where you find another altar space underneath that marks the birthplace, and there's the place where you can come and touch the place where where Jesus was born. A couple of more pictures just to show you uh, what this looks like. This is underneath that uh, worship space that's on the top floor, and so you can just see to your right the stairway leading down. This is what you find when you get downstairs again. That what you see there is a little bit different than what we might normally think of when we when we come to church. This is the altar space, and then again you see the the place there in the floor that marks the birthplace. And I think there's one more picture here. Is that right? Yes. This last picture again facing the front that I showed you just a moment ago, and this is. Um, uh, revealing a, a subfloor that's from thousands, uh, hundreds of years earlier there that we were looking at. I can't remember the date. Sorry, I should be able to tell you that. But let me let me say a word about why this church looks different from, from our church. There are a few places that you visit in Israel where the sacred site there expresses more of the eastern tradition of the church rather than the western tradition that we were a part of. And one of the things that you find in an Eastern expression of Christianity is a greater appreciation for the variety of senses that we have when, uh, in worship. So you see candles and lots of artwork that, that adorn a worship space that really make it look different from what we might be used to because it's not our tradition, it's not our culture. The church in the nativity is certainly one of those places there in Bethlehem. Now last week when we went to the shepherd's fields, I I made mention to you that when you go to Bethlehem, uh, you travel into a different area of Israel. You enter into what is known today as the West Bank area, you may have heard that term before, or the Palestinian territory. So when you make that short journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, again, remember the map and how close those two places are. When you make that short journey from, Bethlehem, uh, from, from Jerusalem into Bethlehem, you pass through a checkpoint that is a part of a much larger structure that separates Jerusalem and the rest of Israel from the West Bank area and from the Palestinian territory. Uh, What you pass through is a wall that separates these two groups of people. Depending on which side of the wall you live on, you would call that wall different things. So an Israeli would call that wall the, the separation wall, the separation fence uh, the Palestinians refer to it with a different name. They refer to it as the Wall of Apartheid. Let me just show you some pictures of this uh, of this structure. The wall was built uh, beginning in 2000, and it was the response from the State of Israel uh, to the suicide bombers who were coming from the West Bank area into Jerusalem. Uh, In the original plan, the wall was eventually going to span 430 miles. As of of uh, 2012, uh, 273 miles of this wall. Uh, has, have been constructed. Uh, you see here how the wall goes through the countryside. You also get a sense of the height of the wall. Uh, at its tallest point, the wall is 26 feet tall. Um, just for comparison's sake, this wall, which now stretches 273 miles, um, is much larger than the Berlin Wall, which many of us have heard about, uh, which was only 96 miles long. Now you, you're probably not surprised to hear that there is conflict in the Middle East. Like I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that no one like showed up and they were like, "Whoa, I had no idea that like they have a problem. Get along? Like what's going on there? I don't know." Everyone knows about that, right? Like that's not a surprise to you to hear that there is conflict between between these two groups of people. You may be surprised to know that this is there. You may not have known about the wall that is there in Israel, but it's probably not a surprise to you that there would be something like this that was built for the sake of increasing security in that part of the world. For those who may wonder, uh, since we are going back in 2016, at no point during this trip did I ever feel unsafe. In fact, when you meet the people there, you, you understand that what is portrayed to us in our media is the extreme positions of any particular argument, and most of the people who live there live in peace with one another. Uh, we had a Palestinian guide, we had a Muslim uh, driver of our bus, uh, the other bus had a, an Israeli guide and also a Muslim driver, and, and they got along just fine, and that's how most people live who who live in this part of the world, and yet there is this, this place there, this, this separation point that keeps these, these two groups of people apart. Now the other thing I don't want you to read into me sharing this with you is I'm not making any particular commentary on either side of this, for or against. That's not the reason that I share it with you. But I share it with you to illustrate the tension that you feel as a Christian going into Bethlehem to remember the birthplace of Jesus, but in order to get there, you have to pass through a checkpoint that is a part of a wall that separates two groups of people. Let me show you another picture of this wall that really illustrates that. You, you see there the artwork, if you will, that has been added to the wall since its construction by the Palestinians. Lots of words and other things there. But this picture, if you can't tell what that is, that is actually a Christmas tree that is surrounded by an artistic rendering of, of this wall. And that picture for me really captures, the, again, the tension that you feel when you, when you pass through a checkpoint to go to Bethlehem to remember the place where Jesus was born, to remember the moment that the angels mark by saying, this is good news, great joy for all the people. And yet to go there, you pass through this reminder, a reminder that, that when you go to Bethlehem, you're reminded that we still live in a world that needs Jesus live in a world that still needs, still needs Jesus. We still need the one who came saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now that statement that you cannot go to Bethlehem without being reminded that we live in a world that still needs Jesus—that may seem like the most obvious statement in the world. Like in the context of a church service, it's almost the most unimaginative thing that a, that a pastor could say. Like, "Oh wow, the pastor thinks the world still needs Jesus. What a surprise that is!" You know? I mean, if you're with a group of Christians and someone asks a question and you give the answer Jesus, you're in the ballpark, right? Like you—you you sort of—you got to be somewhere close to what the actual answer is. If you just throw out. Jesus, you're going to be somewhere. It seems like an obvious thing to say, but here's what I want to suggest to you today as we're uh, right on the cusp of celebrating Christmas, of remembering Jesus' entry into the world, the good news that was for all people, the joy and life and hope that came to us at Christmas as we're on the brink of that. What I want to suggest to you is that if we believe that, if we really believe that the world still needs Jesus, if we see things like this, things that we see in our world every single day that are reminders to us that the world is not as God intended it to be and Jesus has a word to say about that. If we believe that and if we want to live our lives as deeply committed followers of Jesus, which sets our goal for you, by the way, If that's our goal that we share to live our lives as deeply committed followers of Jesus, then what I want to suggest to you is that very simple statement that may seem so obvious and unimaginative to say has incredible implications for the way that you live your life. If we believe that the world still needs Jesus, needs the one who came saying, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. If we believe that, And our desire is to live as deeply committed followers of Jesus. And that has implications for how we live our life every single day and how we approach Bethlehem and the celebration of Christmas and what it means that this is good news for all people, for this one to come proclaiming the love and grace of God present in the life of Jesus. That has implications for the way that we live our life. And so what I wanna share with you are a couple of thoughts of what that may mean for us in our life if you have come to a place in your life where you have said, this is what I want to be. I wanna be a deeply committed follower of Jesus. I wanna live my life in such a way that I honor God, that I live for Jesus, and that my life is used up for his glory and for what he is seeking to do in the world. If that's where you've come in your life, then there's some implications, I think. For how you live your life. Here's the first one. If the world still needs Jesus, then the world needs Christians who are serious about personal transformation. Personal transformation, Uh, this next year in 2015, one of the things that I'm gonna do, I'd encourage you to join me in this, uh, is I'm gonna read through the entire Bible in 2015. I haven't done that since, I did it last time in 2013, I wanna do it again this year. If you're interested in joining me in that, I'd love for you to do that, shoot me an email, I'll share with you the plan that I'm gonna use as I walk through it uh, throughout the entire year. I'd encourage you to do that and if you do it, I'd encourage you to do it with someone else because I don't know if you know this, but this is not the easiest book to read. Like, you're going to get to a point and go, oh my gosh, I have no idea what this is talking about. I'm just totally confused. What, what is going on? There are parts of, of this book that are challenging They are hard. It's not clear necessarily what what God may want you to get out of that day. There may be days that you wake up and you read the scriptures and you you come hoping that you're gonna have some questions answered and all you're gonna get is more questions. Like, I don't know, what what, what am I supposed to get from this? It's a challenging book to read and I think that's actually intentional. I think God designed it that way. God invites us to wrestle with these scriptures and what they mean for us in our life. But there are a few things that I think you can make the case from the first page to the last page are consistent throughout the entire book. And here's one of them, that God transforms the world through people who are being personally transformed. It rarely happens any other way. That the people that God uses to bring change into the world, the change that God longs to have birthed into the world, God uses the people who themselves are experiencing personal transformation. In other words, we cannot separate the work that God does through us from the work that God is doing in us. The work that God wants to do through you begins as a work of God in you. When compassion is birthed into the world, it is birthed into a person who begins to live in ways that reflect compassion and mercy and grace. That's the way change happens. And so we can't separate ourselves and what God is doing in us from what God wants to do through us. What that means is, as a pastor, I can't give you anything that I don't already have. As a parent, you can't give your son or daughter anything that you don't already have. And if our desire as followers of Jesus is to help other people follow Jesus, it begins with our own commitment to wake up every day and say, God, my life is yours. I wanna be transformed. I wanna become something that I never thought was possible. I want tomorrow to be closer to you than I am today. I want to submit myself to the work that you are doing in me so that you can use me in the work you want to do through me. That if the world needs Jesus, then the world needs Christians who are themselves committed to personal transformation because here's the greatest temptation. That I've seen in my own life, but also seen as a pastor over and over and over again. The greatest temptation for people who seek to follow Jesus is to come to a point where your life has gotten better, but you are not invested in sharing that gift with someone else. That's the greatest temptation. To come to a place where we say, I feel better, life is better. I, I have less anxiety. I have less worry. I have more focus. I, I, my li- whatever, however you would define better, life is better. But to miss the point that it is then about investing and sharing that gift with someone else. It's a huge temptation to be satisfied with only experiencing God for ourselves without also feeling that calling and that desire to share that gift With others. If the world needs Jesus, the world needs Christians who are serious about prayerful engagement with the world. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If this world is not as God intended it to be, if there are things that we see and we say, I don't think that's quite right, I don't think that's how God intended the world to be, I think that is short of the vision that God has for God's kingdom, then understanding what is in line with that, in line with God's kingdom, requires that we spend time with God in prayerful discussion and opening ourselves up to his vision for the world so that we begin to live according to that. That's the nice way of saying that. Here's the blunt way of saying it. That we live in a world where we need less opinions and more prayers. Now, notice the irony of that statement, because that's my opinion, all right? But I I want you to catch that. (laughs) But I want you to know that that is an opinion that has been prayerfully conceived, I spent all week thinking about, Lord, is this, is this really what you want me to share this weekend? And, and, I, and I felt the conviction that, yeah, this is, this, is what, this is what needs to be shared. Here's what I've learned in, in my own life. If I'm not prayerfully engaged in a situation or a circumstance or a relationship, my opinion doesn't really matter. My opinion offers very little value if I am not prayerfully engaged in that situation or circumstance. And as a pastor, I get asked my opinion all the time about some things that I think are a little bit strange and about some things that I know that are really important, big things that are happening in your life or in our world. And sometimes I don't have anything to say about that because A, I'm either not as prayerfully engaged in that as I should be or after careful, prayerful engagement, what God has led me to is not an opinion to be shared, but a posture that says, I just need to listen more. Here's how James says it. James says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And here's what I want you to notice. We usually reverse the order there. We are usually quick to become angry, We are usually quick to speak, and we are very slow, if not pushing away from the posture of listening. And I'm going to suggest to you that if the world needs Jesus, then the world needs Christians who spend more time listening than they do speaking. That there are big things that happen in your life and in our world and while there are, are, are a, a whole host of people who line up to share their opinion, there are few. There are few who say, "I'm going to be prayerfully engaged in this, and I'm going to allow God to lead me in how He would invite me to interact in that in that situation or circumstance." Uh, I've also learned that whenever I'm personally invested in something, and, and here's what I mean by that, it can be as simple as, "Well, I see something on the news, and that makes me worried." Something I see, and I, well, that makes me worry. That makes me nervous. That makes me worried about uh, security, or my family, or or, or makes me worry about my finances, whatever it might be. Or or something happens that I'm worried about somebody and their situation or circumstance. They're they're experiencing an illness or whatever level of personal investment I have. Whenever I'm at that place, in a situation, a circumstance, a relationship, whatever it might be, if my goal is to be someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, someone who practices mercy, someone who is pure in heart, someone who has the capacity to play the role of peacemaker, I cannot get there without prayer. It is impossible for me to find myself in the place where I can live into this vision that Jesus offers to me of what it means to follow him in the world, I cannot get there without prayer. If there's a moment in my... This is is even more vulnerable here. If there's a moment in my marriage where I have to come to the place to say, I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. The nine most important words for marriage, by the way. But to get to that point, I can't get there without Jesus. I just can't. Maybe you can. Good job if you can, but I can't get there without being prayerfully engaged. I need Jesus to nudge me closer to the vision of who I am called to be and what I am meant to do if that's ever going to happen in my life. So when you think about those things that worry you or those things that concern you or the situations that we see in our world every single day, whether it's a wall that separates groups of people or some other circumstance that happens here in our own nation, then I want to suggest to you that what the world needs is Christians who are prayerfully engaged in that and seeking the heart of God of how we can be a peacemaker, how we can be the people who have the courage to, to walk into that gray area that's in the middle that no one inhabits. And to go there as a representative of Jesus to share mercy and grace and to play the role of someone who seeks peace. That's what it means to follow Jesus. The third thing I think the world needs, if the world needs Jesus, is churches who are actively working for God's better world. And I share this with you for no other reason to explain why we do the things that we do. You may, some, you may wonder sometimes, why are we doing that? Why, why, why are we doing all these things? Why, why, why does Pastor Mike and Pastor Dave, why do they keep telling us about all this stuff that we're doing? And, and, and what, what, is this, what is this all about? Well, we're convinced. We're convinced that if the world needs Jesus, then the world needs churches who are actively working for God's better world. Because the temptation for a church is the same temptation that you and I face in our individual life. The temptation is to just take care of everyone who's here and to forget about the world that is beyond our walls. And when a church finds itself in that place, then that church begins to die. And I think you can make the case that church ceases to be the church. It ceases to be God's vision for what the church is meant to be, that churches are those who should be actively working for God's better world in our community, in our nation, in our region, and around the world to look at the world and to see those places that are not as God intended them to be and to say, maybe we can help. Maybe we can do something there. Maybe we can make sure that that family has, has food this Christmas. Maybe we can make sure that, that that relationship has a chance to be healed. Maybe we can be those people who can wade into that, that gray space, into that, that middle ground and, and be a peacemaker. Maybe Maybe we can do something about that. Here's something you may have heard Pastor Mike say uh, he's been saying it for the last several years. It's, it's our commitment to you that you will never have to apologize for the work your church is doing in our community and around the world. You're never going to have to apologize for that. Because what we're committed to do, to doing is, is, is leading a church that is actively working for God's better world. That is not content with just saying, well, everybody here seems to be happy. We're not there yet anyways. But, <laughs> but a church that's, that's committed to making a difference in our community, to making a difference in our nation, to making a difference around the world. And here's here's what makes me so proud. Every time we push and every time we prod and every time we say, hey, we're going to do something crazy, you know what you say? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And it just gives me the sense that you get it. You get what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a world that is not as God intended it to be. We got work to do. And that at Christmas, when we remember the good news of Jesus' entry into this world, it should be a time where we remember we got work to do. We got work to do. And God has given us the responsibility as followers of Jesus to be a a part of, of that work that He has called us to do because. We live in a world that still needs Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess to you our need of you today. And we confess, Lord, that sometimes we become aware of that only after we have messed it up. When we have tried to do something on our own. When we have failed to be prayerfully engaged. Where we may have shared an opinion. But have missed the mark. Of what it might mean to share you. And so we approach Christmas. Bethlehem. The remembrance of this great and wonderful news with humility. And with forgiveness, we ask God that, that you would lead us today into understanding in a better way what it means to follow you into the chaos and craziness of the world in which we live. None of us, Lord, none of us, Lord, uh, have been led astray on this. We know, We know how deeply our world needs you. So we pray that you would lead us and use us in building your better world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.